Thank you. Let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 15. John, chapter 15 in our Bibles this morning. Do you ever find yourself from where you're your current position in life, uh, your current situation, you ever find yourself trying to peer ahead through the, the, uh, into the unforeseeable future uh, to, to find out how it's all going to work out for you? you ever find yourself doing that? Um, I think that's where the hearts of the disciples were here on the night that Jesus was betrayed. I think uh, we know that their hearts were troubled. Uh, Jesus had identified that and told them, let not your hearts be troubled. I think they were, as we know from our study so far, because their hearts were troubled, they were asking Jesus where he was going, where are you going to go? Uh, we don't know how we're going to get there. Uh, they were telling him that they didn't know the way. They were asking him for a glimpse of God. If you're the father or, or uh, could you just show us the father? It would suffice us. It'd be enough. It'd be just what I need if you just show me the Father. You remember them talking to Jesus like that? And uh, you remember they were wondering, Lord, why are you revealing all of this truth to us? Why are you manifesting yourself, yourself just to us, but, but you're, not, you're not revealing your might and your power to the whole world? Just us, just us, just us 11 up here hiding, scared, not knowing the way ahead. You know, the disciples had enjoyed three years of blessing, walking and talking with Jesus Christ, listening to him teach them. And it had been hard. There had been some hard times along the way, but Jesus had always shown himself mighty, and he had always been there to comfort them and to encourage them and to lead them and to teach them. And, and now he's telling them that he's leaving them. He's going, and where he goes, they can't go. And, of course, their hearts are troubled by all of this. And I think, as far as they were concerned, everything around them was coming It was coming to a halt. It was all coming apart. It was crashing down all around them. Maybe you've had similar thoughts as the disciples had on this night. Thoughts like, Lord, I don't understand. God, I don't understand what you're trying to do. Or, God, what's the plan? What is your plan? What's the, what's, when is this going to end? I can endure a little bit more, but I don't know how much more. When is this going to end? How is this all going to work out? Am I even going to make it through this? And why does it have to be this way? I mean, these were the questions that I think were on the disciples' minds. Why, why does it have to be this? Why are you only manifesting yourself to us? Why not to the whole world? What's the holdup? What's the problem? They had some legitimate questions. And you and I have questions often. Why does it have to be this way? How can I possibly make it? If I am going to make it, how can I make it? Now, remember, Jesus had taught them that he was going to prepare a place for them. But until then, he was going to send his comforter. And we studied that, you remember? But not just his comforter, not just the comforter, but he himself was going to come unto them. And not just himself, but also the Father with him. And we talked about that. We looked at that in John chapter 14, an incredible passage of Scripture. As Jesus was letting his disciples know, you are not going to be alone. I am leaving, but I'm returning. In the meantime, I'm going to send a comforter. And the Father's going to come with me. And we saw the incredible truth that really the Trinity lives within every single child of God. We are not without hope. We are not without power. We have everything that we know, everything that we need. And we know this, that God is actually the inheritance of his children. He is our inheritance. That's an incredible truth that I could preach on every Sunday this year, and you and I still would not fully grasp it. Okay. So, of course, these wonderful Bible truth, these were wonderful biblical truths, but how are they going to make it? And, and I'm 
And I'm thrilled to be able to teach and preach on John chapter 15. It falls right in line. It's what Jesus was teaching his disciples. And it had to do with this idea of, okay, you've given us this wonderful theological truth that God lives within us. He's going to dwell within us. We are going to be the temple of God. Um, We're going to have him. He's going to help us and aid us and direct us. But uh, now Jesus applies that theological truth, that incredible truth that frankly is too big for us to get our minds around. And he uses a simile or a metaphor to teach a very practical truth as to how are these disciples going to be able to make it? How are they going to be able to go on? And look at our text, and I'll begin reading in verse 1. John 15, verse 1. Familiar passage. Many of us have heard it. We're familiar with it in the sense that we've heard it. I do not think we are familiar with it in the sense that we understand it. Let's look at it. Verse 1, I'll read down through verse 11. He says this, I am the true vine, and my father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away, and every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, as the idea of to prune, that it may bring forth more fruit. Now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine. No more can ye, except ye abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches." He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me, ye can do nothing. If a man abide not in me, he, uh, he is cast forth as a branch, and is withered. And men gather them, the branches, and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If ye abide in me, and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what ye will, and it shall be done unto you. Herein is my Father glorified, that ye bear much fruit. So shall ye be my disciples, learners of me, followers of me. Verse 9. As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. That's an amazing statement. Same way the Father loves the Son is the same way the Son loves us. Continue, and that word in verse 9, continue, is the same Greek word that's translated abide the other nine times that we've already read it. Continue, abide ye in my love. Verse 10, if ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things have I spoken unto you that my joy might remain. There's that Greek word again, meno, abide, that my joy might abide, remain in you, and that your joy might be full. So the passage here, the metaphor that he's giving um, is a story to teach a spiritual truth. And the main thrust of of the metaphor that he uses is the idea of abiding. How are you, how are these men who were worn out, tired, struggling with hopelessness, how are they going to be able to make it? How are you going to be able to make it? Temptations all through the auditorium. Um, A lack of wisdom on big decisions that need to be made. Um, Unbelief, struggling with the sin of unbelief. Can I trust him? Okay, I trust him, but I'm not sure how it's going to work out for me. How do I keep going? Loneliness. Separation that has taken place. How are we going to be able to make it? And the answer for the disciples that Jesus had for them is the very same answer that is true for you and for me as his learners. And his answer was, you need to abide in Jesus Christ. And he, Jesus Christ, will abide in you. You continue in him. You rest in him. He will continue in you. He will continue to deliver you. He will continue to sustain you, to nourish you, to comfort you, to teach you, to guide you, you see. Abide in me, and I in you, 
and the same, those two combined, the same will bring forth much fruit. Let's pray together and we'll look at this passage. Dear Heavenly Father, help us, I pray. We need it. There are many needs represented in this room, in my own life as well. Father, as we've just read in this passage, it is true that without you, we can do nothing. In and of ourselves, we do not produce anything that is good, anything that is pleasing to you. We need you. We acknowledge that. I pray that you, by your Holy Spirit, would teach us. I pray that he would have free reign in this room and in our hearts. I pray that he would bring conviction and encouragement and comfort. Father, I pray that he would teach us. And Lord, I pray that we would better understand this passage, but not just intellectually in our minds, but that we would experience it in our lives because that is your will. Help us, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. So look again at the passage. You see the word abide shows up 11 times, or I should say the word, the Greek word meno shows up 11 times. You see the English word abide shows up nine times. I already drew your attention to it, but I think it's in verse number nine. The word continue is actually from the same word meno. Um, And then also in verse 11, you see uh, the word remain translated in the English language remain coming from the same Greek word meno. So this idea of uh, abide shows up 11 times in 11 verses. How many of us would understand that it's important? Okay, it's important. Uh, It is very unusual that we look at a passage of Scripture and we see one word showing up 11 times in 11 verses. In several of the verses, it shows up multiple times. Okay, so it's it's a big deal. The word abide means to stay. To stay. Um, uh, It has the idea of to stay in a given place or a, a given state. A condition. Um, it has the idea of to stay in a certain, in the same relationship, or to to, to stay with the same expectance or expectancy that someone that something's going to be done. In other words, to not give up hope. Uh, it means to continue. It means to dwell with, to endure, to be present, to remain, to stand, to tarry. Okay. Uh, Webster's 1828 dictionary defines the word abide as to remain or to to kind of settle down. To settle down like you're going to stay there for a while. You know, our culture today in 2020 places a tremendous amount of emphasis on going somewhere and getting on with things. If it doesn't work out, you just move on. You know, if it doesn't work out the way you like it to, you just... You give up on that, you move on to the next thing. Now, there are some things in this life we ought to give up on and move on from, okay? But the Lord Jesus Christ is not one of them. I think if I were to ask you the question this morning, how many of you who have believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ, I mean, you you trusted him to save your soul from death and hell. If I asked you, how many of you, how many of your lives have worked out exactly the way that you thought they were going to. I mean, the Lord led you, he directed you, he He guided you, you knew he was guiding you and directing you and working in your life. How many of you, for you, and don't raise your hand, but for how many of us in this room, we would say, you know what, our lives worked out exactly the way we thought they were going to, uh, even better than we expected. Now, we could, If we're being positive, we can say God has worked mightily in our lives. But from a fleshly perspective, we would say, well, I'm a little disappointed. You know, I I thought the income would be greater. I thought the house would be bigger. I thought the vehicle would run better. I thought my life would be easier following Jesus. I mean, before I followed him, I followed after myself. You know, I understand he that soweth to the flesh or... But sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. And so I believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and I thought, okay, there's still going to be some hardships. But you know what? In, in, in general, my life is just going to be better. It's going to smell better. It's going to feel better. It's going to be easier, right? Following Jesus. Now, life 
life brings us challenges, period. Sickness, there's sickness on the earth. That's just the way that it is. There's disease. There are bad decisions that people make. And just because a person has believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ does not mean that life all of a sudden for a child of God is just easy. And so we have to make a choice. Are we going to continue in Christ to trust him, to rely upon him, to abide in him? Or are we going to move on? Well, I tried that. I tried the Lord like I tried an investment, it didn't work out, so I'm moving on. Jesus is talking to his disciples about how they are going to be able to go on, how they're going to be able to make it. And so this word abide has the idea of staying in a given place, this staying in a, in a relationship, in a position. And in our society, that's viewed negatively. Americans are on the move from relationship to relationship. From state to state, from company to company, job to job, church to church. And the tragedy is that fewer people, I feel, are abiding in the Lord Jesus Christ, are settling in for the long haul. I'm going to trust him no matter what. A close, having a close-knit relationship with the Lord. Now, we know the time frame of this conversation that Jesus is having with his 11 disciples, right? They're, the group has left the upper room. You see that back in verse 31 of chapter 14. But when the, he says, but that the world may know that, that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, even so I do. And then he says to his disciples, this is the last supper. He says, arise, let us go hence. And so they're in Jerusalem for, in the upper room. They finish up Jesus' teaching. And he says, let's all get up and let's go. So they do that. They get up and they leave the upper room. And they're about to cross over the book, the brook Kidron, which separates um, the Garden of Gethsemane from Jerusalem. And uh, so they've had to leave the upper room, make their way out of the city of Jerusalem. I don't know if they necessarily went to the temple. That was sometimes customary. Other times it was not. I don't know where they went during this period of time where he's teaching now. I think it's more probable they've left the upper room. They're making their way down toward the brook Kidron where they're going to go up the other side. There are olive trees there. There would have been vineyards there. And the disciples, as Jewish men, would have been very familiar with the idea of vineyards. Uh, how many of you have a vineyard? Okay, so we're not. You drink grape juice, right? All right, that's about the extent of our knowledge of vineyards. Welch's grape juice. But you have in a vine, you, you, or you have in a vineyard, you have a vine, a main stalk, and then you have the branches that come off of that main vine. Um, and we'll look at that as we go through here a little bit. But, but here they are. They're about to cross over the brook Kidron. And before they cross over Kidron, they're... And before they make their way up to the Garden of Gethsemane, they pause here and Jesus teaches them using an allegory, this metaphor, which is a picture that can be interpreted to, to reveal a hidden meaning. Now, look over to chapter 18 for just a moment in verse 1. It says there in 18 verse 1, it says, When Jesus had spoken these words, chapters 15, 16, and 17, he went forth with his disciples over the brook Kidron, which was a garden into the which he entered and his disciples. And of course, he's going to be betrayed by Judas Iscariot there. So we have this period of time, chapters 15, 16, and 17. They've left the upper room. They have not yet passed over the brook. And Jesus is teaching his disciples about this matter of how they're going to be able to make it, even though he's leaving. You can go back to chapter 15, where we'll be at. So there, in those days, there would have been these vineyards along the hillsides as they walked. And in these final moments with his disciples, Jesus is inviting these 11 men to remain with him. Don't lose hope. Don't give up. Remain. Continue. Abide. How many of us in this room have ever been tempted to give up hope and not trust the Lord? You don't have to raise your hand. I'm tempted to have you raise your hand. I dare say it would be most everyone in the room. 
Did you hear what I just said? Everyone in the room. Sometimes in our personal lives, in our what we call our journey through life, some of you in this room are facing some very difficult things that I'm aware of, and others you're facing difficult things that I have no idea about, but the Lord knows about it. Sometimes we have in our mind that no one has it worse than we do, harder than we do. No one can understand us. We don't have the ability. We're not going to make it. There's a hopelessness. Okay, It's called unbelief. It's very common to man. And it's something that every single one of us at times in our lives struggle with. These men were struggling with this. Jesus knew that at this moment they were struggling with this. He knew that in the days coming, they were going to be struggling with this. Peter's going to deny him three times. Thomas is going to say, after he's told Jesus has been raised from the dead, Thomas is going to say, yeah, unless I can stick my hands in the prints of the nails in his hands and in his feet and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe that he has been raised from the dead. And this is one of his disciples. Okay. So there were, they were given, they were prone to unbelief, just like you and me. And Jesus, as he's talking to these men, he's inviting them, remain with me, stay with me, abide in me. This is the way you're going to make it. Don't just try me out, is what he's saying. Don't just try me out or give me a chance or see what it might be like. And don't reevaluate. Jesus is teaching them. He's instructing his followers, those whom he loves. And he's saying, this is God's plan. How are you going to overcome How are you going to make it? How are you going to succeed? How are you going to please God? This is how. You're going to have to abide in me. You're going to have to continue in me. I want to look at four truths from this passage in the time that we have. Number one, we're going to abide in Christ. We we must depend upon Christ as our source for life. We must depend upon Jesus Christ as our source. And and we could add all kinds of adjectives to describe what kind of source he is or what he provides. But a vine gives nourishment to all of the branches. You take away the vine and you have just branches and you have no fruit at all. You have a bunch of branches that will soon be brittle They produce nothing. They have nothing in and of themselves. And so I noticed, first of all, looking at this metaphor, these words of Jesus, that we must depend upon Christ as our source for everything. Look at verse one, the beginning part. He says it this way. I am the vine. He says, I am the true vine. And the idea in the Greek was, I am the vine, the true. It's an emphasis. It's not that it's wrong the way that it's written. I am the true vine. Now, why does he say I am the true vine? Why does he say that he is the true vine? Why didn't he just say I am the vine? Well, well, there were other vines and there are other vines spoken of in the word of God. And what were some of these other vines? Well, there are actually three different vines found in scripture. There's the past vine of Israel. Um, There is the vine of the world which would be future, as it's spoken of in the book of Revelation. And then there's the true vine, which is present, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. And I, and I need to explain to you a little bit about the past vine, because it's very important, and it, and it really helps us understand what Jesus was talking about when he spoke to these men. And by the way, he, they would have been there to hear him talk and teach about this past vine, um, specifically Israel. And the past vine was the children of Israel. And there are many passages we could go to. I'm going to ask you to look with me to Matthew 21. Matthew chapter 21. And God miraculously had transplanted Israel into Canaan. You remember that, right? He took them out of Egypt. He brought them to Canaan and gave Israel as a nation every possible opportunity to succeed. Isaiah 5 and verse 4, he says this, what could have, what could have been done more to my vineyard, speaking about Israel, that I have not done in it. Wherefore, when I looked that it should bring forth grapes, brought it forth wild grapes, 
He says, I did. I gave Israel everything they needed to produce a good, abundant yield of fruit. But Israel brought forth not a good, pure fruit, but wild grapes, he says. And if ever there was a nation that had everything that they needed to be successful, it was Israel. But the vine that Israel produced was wild grapes. Instead of being just, they oppressed. Instead of worshiping God, they worshiped idols. Instead of being pure, they lived in fornication. Instead of producing righteousness, they produced unrighteousness. And so what did God do to Israel while he chastened them? Mercifully, he gave them the truth. He would send his prophets to them and they would tell them the truth. Sometimes Israel would repent and sometimes they would not. And so if they did not repent, God mercifully brought to he brought judgment and consequences upon Israel. Mercifully, he forgave them and when they would repent and, and mercifully, he would restore them back to the land. Over and over again, this happens, and we see it in the Old Testament. And God sent his own son to the vine of Israel, and they rejected him. They scorned him. They lied about him. They accused him and mocked him. And finally, the vine of Israel killed the son of God. So there's the past vine of the children of Israel. The Bible also speaks about the future vine of the earth in Revelation 14. We'll not take the time to turn there, but this, the future vine of the earth, is the world system of rebellion against God, which is ripening for the judgment of God. And the unsaved are branches in the vine of the earth. They depend upon this world for their sustenance. The unsaved of this world depend upon the vine of the earth for their satisfaction. Sometimes you and I find ourselves trying to depend upon the vine of the earth for satisfaction. But it never brings satisfaction. And there's coming a day when the vine of the earth is going to be cut down and destroyed, according to Revelation chapter 14. And Jesus is going to actually trample out that vintage. And Jesus is going to return to rule and to reign. And so that brings us to where we're at. And I've asked you to turn to Matthew chapter 21. And I want to draw your attention here to the, the present vine which is the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, Jesus in our passage in chapter 15 and verse 1, the beginning part, he's telling us that Jesus is the true vine. Not many hours before we our passage in John chapter 15, Jesus had spoken. He had used the same figure of speech in Matthew chapter 21. I'm going to begin reading in verse 33. Are you there? Matthew 21. Look with me at verse 33. He's speaking using another parable. And I'm going to read down through verse 43. Jesus is speaking. This was only spoken maybe really a few hours before our passage in John 15. His disciples would have heard this. He says this in Matthew 21, verse 33. Hear another parable. There was a certain householder. And in this parable, the householder represents God the Father, which planted a, vine a vineyard, that would have been Israel, and hedged it about, and digged a wine press in it and built a tower and let it out to a husbandman. That's somebody who's going to care for the vineyard of Israel. Would have been the priests. And went into a far country. And when the time of the fruit drew near, he sent his servants, God sent his servants, prophets, to the husbandmen to Israel that they might receive the fruits of it. And the husbandmen took his servants and beat one and killed another and stoned another. So they rejected the messengers of God. Verse 36, again, he, God, sent another servant, other servants more than the first, more important than the first, and they did unto them likewise. But last of all, he sent unto them his son, saying, they will reverence my son. But when the husbandmen saw the son, and the leaders of Israel saw the son, they said unto among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and let us seize on his inheritance. And they caught him and cast him out of the vineyard and slew him. Jesus is speaking these things. When the Lord thereof of the vineyard cometh, what will he do unto those husbandmen? Jesus asked these religious leaders about themselves. And they said unto him, he will miserably destroy those wicked men and will let out his vineyard unto other husbandmen, which shall render him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus saith unto them, 
Did ye never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? The same has become the head of the corner. The cornerstone, this is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And notice verse 43. Therefore say I unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you, speaking of Israel, and given to a nation, an ethnos, a reference to the Gentile church, bringing forth the fruits thereof. You can turn back to John in chapter 15. But the the passage that I just read to you in Matthew 21, you have these servants that God sends and, and Israel beats them and stones them and kills them. And then God sends his own son. And they what do they do? They cast him forth and they kill him. And the disciples had heard all of this teaching. And think about this. Jesus is standing here in the middle of Israel, really on the edge of Jerusalem, just there near the brook Kidron. He's in the middle of a ruined vine so far as Israel was concerned. A contaminated vine. And in effect, Jesus was saying, God, he's saying this to his disciples, God has not failed if the nation has failed. The purposes of God are not abandoned. Now he's speaking to dejected men who are losing hope. Is God enough? Can God save? Is there any salvation if you are going to leave us? And they believe him to be the Messiah, the Christ. The Son of God, if you are going to leave us, is there any salvation at all? Jesus, as he looks at these men, he's telling them the purposes of God are not abandoned. God has not been defeated. He, God, who has created the vine to bring forth fruit for the world, is not defeated. And he says it, I am the true vine. And think of this. It's dark. It's at night. The moon is probably out in Jerusalem. Jesus is there with only his 11 men. And all around him, there's unbelief throughout Jerusalem. This night, there's treachery. Judas is going to the priest. He's being paid off. He's going to deliver Jesus into their hands. He's going to betray him with a kiss. He's going to be denied. They're going to break their own laws to try him during the night. Pilate's going to wash his hands, even though he knows he's an innocent man, and they're going to kill him. So all around Jesus, there's this treachery and rejection and betrayal and hatred, and all the other vines are just imitations, by the way. There's no satisfaction in them. There's no true sustenance. There's no life there. All the other vines are not the real thing. And and here's the truth about Jesus being the vine. We who are saved have been grafted into him. We've been grafted into Christ. We have a living relationship with Jesus Christ, and we literally belong to him. Jesus Christ is our only source, and we depend upon him for what? We depend upon him for life and for strength and for wisdom and nourishment and understanding and courage and patience and joy. We, we, we uh, abide in him. We continue in him. And he provides for us peace and understanding and sat- true satisfaction. And on and on that list could go. And so Jesus is saying to his disciples, you need to continue to depend upon me as your source. I Jesus was saying, am your everything. I am your life. Have you received everlasting life through the Lord Jesus Christ? Has he given you life? Has he saved your soul? Has he forgiven you of your sins, past, present, and future? Are you tempted to go outside of him to find your satisfaction, to find your hope, to find your way, to survive? I think we're all tempted to that to some degree. I notice, first of all, that we must depend upon Christ as our source for life. Secondly, I notice in the text that we must understand that we cannot do the work of God independent of God. I'll say it another way. You cannot serve God and do his will outside of abiding in the vine. Can't do it. You cannot do it. Now I need to continue on. Look at verse 4. He says, Abide in me, and I in you, 
As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except ye abide in the vine, no more can ye, except ye abide in me. I was talking to these men, brokenhearted, disenchanted, discouraged. He says in verse 5, I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. And then he says this, for without me, ye can do nothing. We have to understand who we are. He is the vine. He is the giver of life. He is the one who ultimately produces what is necessary to produce fruit. We, we need to understand who we are. We are the branches. That's who we are. How many houses have you ever seen that are built with uh, branches from a vineyard? Not many. How many of us can we even use a branch from a vineyard? What, what, what good are branches from a vineyard? You can make a wreath. That's the best I got. They're not good for anything. You can't mill them into boards and build a house. You can't make a deck out of them. You, you can make a wreath. And eventually, you take that down and throw it away. They're, they're really good for nothing. And so we have to understand that we, as the branches, cannot do the work of God independent of God. And sometimes we, we do this. We try this. We we try to do the work of God in of ourselves. And who is Jesus speaking to here? Well, he's speaking to his disciples. Again, a branch is useless in and of itself. A, a branch cannot reproduce its own life. It relies upon the life from the vine. It, it's our communion with Christ. The branch is communion with the vine that gives life. And it's our communion, our fellowship with Christ through the Holy Spirit that makes it possible to bear fruit. You know, a marriage is a union, right? Looking forward to a wedding this summer, and there's going to be a union, Lord willing. There's going to be a union. But if all a marriage stays between a husband and a wife is a union, a legal agreement, living under the same roof, that's not much of a marriage. If that marriage is going to be vibrant and enjoyable, if the, if the needs of both members of that marriage are going to be met, there needs to be communion. There needs to be fellowship. There needs to be a seeking one another. There needs to be a seeking to know one another and to love one another and to cherish one another. And Jesus is saying, if ye abide in me, if you'll seek me, if you'll rest in me, if you won't look other places other than me, I'll abide in you and we'll, we will produce much fruit. Much fruit will be produced if you'll abide in the vine. But I know this, man, you're going to be tempted to go outside of the vine. To the point with Peter where he's literally saying, I don't know him. That's how far, far Peter fell. It takes daily love and daily devotion to maintain communion in a marriage. You know, a shepherd brings a, sh a sheep into the flock, but the sheep, that sheep must follow the shepherd to have protection and provision. And if we're going to abide in the Lord Jesus Christ, we need to understand that we are only branches and we need to confess our need that he is our strength and that he is our life. So what does it mean to abide? Let's think about that. I've defined the word, but what does it mean to abide? Well, it means to to keep fellowship or to stay in fellowship with Christ, to stay in communion with Christ. Why? So that his life can work in and through us to produce fruit. We're just branches, just conduit, really, through which his life flows. If you if you were wiring a house electrically and you just ran conduit through the whole house, I mean, you did it great. You ran conduit through the whole house. Amazing. You were phenomenal at running conduit, but there was no wire in the conduit and there was no electricity flowing through the conduit, you could have outlets, you know, and they look pretty, fancy covers, and you, you would have nothing, just a bunch of conduit. We are the conduit. Jesus Christ is our life. He's the power that surges through the conduit. He referred to himself as living water, flowing, we might say, through the conduit that gives life to all who drink from it. 
And we need, we need to yield to the word of God. Look at verse 3. He says, now, he says, ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. God's word purges. It even prunes. It takes away entanglements. It keeps us, it, it allows us to bear fruit. It, it keeps in other things from being in our lives that would keep us from bearing fruit. So we need to be in the word of God. We need to obey Christ. Look at verse 10, verse 9, because we love him. Verses 9 and 10, he says this, As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Continue, abide ye in my love. If ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments and and abide in his love. So how do we know, though, if we're abiding? Is there something we ought to feel? Like, is there a day you wake up and you're like, wow, that was... I think I'm abiding. Whoa. No, you might have just gotten shocked. You're holding your dog's shock collar, you know, and you accidentally hit the button. Whoa. No, that doesn't mean you're abiding. Abiding is not a feeling. Okay. It's not a feeling. Uh, How do we know that we're abiding then? Is there any evidence that we can expect to see? And the answer to that is yes. Uh, look Look at verse number two. One of the evidences of abiding in Christ is bearing fruit. He says, every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it. Notice he purgeth, he prunes a fruit-bearing branch. Why? That it may bring forth more fruit. Uh, So one of the signs to know that we actually are abiding in Christ is that he actually brings painful things into our lives to take away unnecessary branches that are sprouting out, distractions in our lives that would draw away the nourishment of the vine for its own purpose. And, the, and, and God actually is the one who's doing the pruning. One of the ways you know that you're abiding is if you recognize God is actively working in your life. You're going through some challenging things. You know, obviously we talked about this a couple weeks ago, that peace is of God, true, genuine peace is of God. But we, but we made it very clear that peace is not like, the peace of God is not like the world's peace. A, a sign of abiding doesn't mean that we seek him all the more. There are times where God allows difficulties to our lives so that our faith will be tested and so that we will seek him all the more. So that we can know him on a more intimate basis. And so many of us in this room are are in a similar situation to where the disciples were. Maybe a little disenchanted. Not really sure. I mean, what did I I get into here? I don't know if it's all going to work out. Things aren't looking like they're going down the right path. This thing doesn't look very successful. What's going on? This is not how I planned. This is not how I would have done it. And Jesus is saying to them, you need to remain. Stay right where you are. Trust me, is what he's saying. Abide. Continue. Say, I'm just getting ready to pull up and move on. You know, and I'll and I'll find the I'll be I'll be fresh and new. I'm just gonna need to get a new beginning. Lord, if he moves you, then so be it. But don't you dare remove yourself from where God has you. Some of us can. Some of us can. We would if we could, but we can't. Uh, another sign that we're abiding in the Lord is that our Father is actually pruning us. And I mentioned that in verse 2. You see it there in verse 2. Another uh, sign that we're abiding is that God answers prayer. Look at verse 7. He says, if, if ye abide in me and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what ye will, and it shall be done unto you. Now, as, as his words abide in us, his words become our words. We're in full agreement with that. Jesus says to his disciples, you can ask for whatever you want, and it'll be done. Many of us can't ask for whatever we want because our wants are not in line with what God wants. We can't expect God to say yes to what we ask for because what we're asking for is totally not in obedience or submission to what he wants. But Jesus here says, 
If I'm abiding in you and you're abiding in me and my words, if you're, if you're obeying my words, if you are not just obeying them outwardly, but inwardly, if you are in agreement with my words, you can ask for whatever you want, and God will say yes to it. There's more that we can talk about that. Another sign that we're abiding in the Lord is that, that our love for God is, is deepening, and our, our love for our fellow believers is growing. Look at verse number 9. He says, as the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Continue, abide in my love. Look down to verse number 12. This is my commandment, that ye love one another as I have loved you. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. And that really in verse 13 is a description for us of the kind of love he's talking about here. Verse 12, he says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. That tells us the, the, the degree. But then he goes one step further. And he says, if you want an illustration to what degree I'm telling you to love one another. It's to the point that you are willing to literally lay down your life for your fellow believers, your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Yeah, well, what about my happiness? That is not like Christ at all. Now, I know we all got that gear, right? What about me? We all have the what about me gear. What about my happiness? We all got that gear. Jesus is saying to his disciples, this is a sign that you're abiding in me if you're loving like me. You're putting others before you. You're putting your brothers and sisters in Christ before yourself. Another sign that we're abiding in Christ is joy. Look at verse 11. He says, these things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be full. Now, I didn't say, he's not saying here, if you're abiding in me, you're just going to be like happy like you were as a Michigan fan when they beat Michigan State yesterday. Because frankly, as fun as that was, that's not all that satisfying at the end of the day, is it? I mean, it's great when you got to see your Michigan State buddies and look them in the eyes like you loved them, but they knew better. This kind of joy that the Lord Jesus Christ is talking about is that joy that no matter the trial or the struggle, you have joy. Why? Because you're abiding, you're resting, you're remaining in the vine. You're resting in him. You're trusting him. I'm going to stop there. That's half of a sermon. You're going to have to come back next week if you want the rest of it. Now, I have a question for you before we pack up, okay? Are you abiding in Christ? Because if you're not, you're going to lack joy. Some of you are packing up. Don't tempt me to preach the second half right now. If you're not abiding in Christ, and when I'm not abiding in Christ, you know what I lack? I lack joy. I lack contentment. I lack, thank, I lack thankfulness. Answers to prayer aren't there. I'm asking for the wrong things. I'm discontent. Are you abiding in Christ? Some of us, and there are some in this room, and you're being you're being tested at a great level, very high level, to the point where, as your pastor, I worry for you. Sometimes I hurt for you. I'm concerned, are they going to continue? Are they going to throw in the towel? And we know in the honesty of this moment, there's no other salvation outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. So when, when one of us, if someone throws in the towel, we say, you know what, I'm not going to remain, I'm not going to continue, I'm going to, I'm going to try to find another way of salvation for myself. There is no other way of salvation. 
it will get worse. The Lord Jesus Christ had these men at this point in their lives. He looks at them and he says, you need to abide in me. I'll abide in you. And we'll see it next week. It's going to produce much fruit. Are you following me? Much fruit. We're going to look next week at what kind of fruit abiding in Christ produces. And it is beautiful. Some of you who are on the, on the verge of collapse, you feel that you can barely continue on yourself in life. Telling you, if you will abide in Christ, he will produce fruit, much fruit, and much more fruit through you. We'll look at it next week. So this week, I want you to focus on abiding in Christ. I'm going to continue. I'm going to settle down. I'm going to remain in Christ. I'm going to trust him and let him have his way in my life. Let's let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your love for us. Thank you for your word. Lord, I tried to get through all of it. I didn't. Lord, I'm trusting you by your Holy Spirit that you'd work in the hearts of your people. You've given us what, you, what we've needed today. Pray that you'd sustain us, strengthen us, nourish us, Lord. Lord, I believe I'm speaking primarily to your disciples. I believe there are a great majority of folks in this room love you very dearly. And Lord, as adults, as your followers, there's, there's some of us who are on the verge of collapse. Lord, we need this truth. So I pray that you would teach us by your Holy Spirit this week. Some of us just... Help us to ponder what it means to abide. May that question burn in our hearts and our minds. May we go back and read this passage. Glorify yourself in us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You are dismissed.